Hello and welcome to Ashurst Business Agenda. This episode is the second part of a two-part conversation between James Kinross, who is the Senior Lecturer in Colorectal Surgery and a Consultant Surgeon at the Imperial College London, and our very own Chris Giorgio, Partner and Head of Ashurst Advance. The conversation picks up on the similarities between surgeons and lawyers in a data-rich world and goes on to discuss the apprenticeship model and the innovations adopted by the two professions out of the COVID pandemic. You are listening to Ashurst Business Agenda. From an outside perspective, your two professions could be perceived as having an aversion to failure. I'd be interested to hear both your thoughts on this issue of failure and what happens in regards to failure in this data-rich world in which we live in. Chris, did you have some thoughts on this? I think where we're getting to in the legal profession is more of a focus on learning and continuous improvement, but I think we've got a huge road to travel there. I don't think it's yet embedded within our DNA that you look at, at the process, you fix and rewire it, you maintain, you know, RAID or risk logs to, to, to surgically identify and pinpoint exactly where something went wrong and, and remediate it and learn the lessons for later. I think we've got a lot to learn there from, from other professions. I would say that the change in patient safety culture has been the biggest revolution in healthcare that's occurred in my professional lifetime and it's probably been the most impactful. Patient safety has transformed the way that we think about risk and the consequences and implications of failure in medicine. Before really the patient safety culture came in, you know, surgeons operated very independently with no transparency whatsoever in their practice. And there was a culture that went with that that was not conducive to high performance or to being um, you know, transparent about your your outcomes, uh, and and that has fundamentally changed. Now, in 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 healthcare, we've borrowed the kind of fundamentals of our approach to patient safety from the aviation industry, which you know you know broadly you know there were simple things like crew resource management and how you communicate and how you share findings from failure. You know, we in in healthcare we tend to um, you know well there was a historical in you know um, uh, practice of really hiding from failure. And just not being honest about it and 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 again outside of surgery if you look at pharma when a drug trial fails we bury that data and it never comes out because it's 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 bad for business and and actually if a plane crashes you really really want to know why you want to learn absolutely everything you possibly can from that episode of failure and make sure that it never never happens again in surgery so just to come back more specifically to what i do in in surgery of course we we borrow a lot of the practices from the broader safety culture around um, you know transparency communication you know data reporting clinical governance uh, and those sorts of practices but we have some some more specific practices so we have something called a morbidity and mortality meeting which back in the old days used to be very hostile and quite Quite challenging but they've got better over time and and more data driven right so now we have a kind of more honest appraisal of that data but in morbidity mortality boards we openly discuss our failures in a learning environment in a no blame learning environment it's it's can we have an honest conversation about what went wrong and why and how do we make sure this never happens again and also how do we constantly audit 
uh, and report on that data so that we have a continuous learning culture. And that continuous learning culture, again, happens across the NHS, happens across the board. We have national reporting uh, systems. And one of the major drivers for that actually came through the introduction initially of targets and open data reporting at hospital level and national level. And then we also report on that locally. And in fact, actually, one of the biggest learnings of COVID has been that some of those data uh, sharing processes were not as robust and as good as we as we wanted as we and, and I, I think that will be a major in a, a major innovation for us going going forward so safety for us is like a major it, it's it's a major theme every operation that i do at the beginning of every operation we have a, a world health organization checklist and i will like a like a like a pilot will tick things off have we checked you know we've got enough fuel in the jet yes we have you know we will do that for every single case every single case that i finish i will check out these are the things that we said we were going to do. This is what happened. This is where we deviated. These are the problems that we've addressed. And this is what this means for this patient going forward, you know, post-operatively. And we constantly audit. I'm not saying it's perfect. It's not perfect. Like we still don't execute these things as well as we should. And we're constantly trying to, trying to, to improve that process. But at least we now have that process. It sounds like what you've done is systematize the processes really, really effectively. And I think at the moment in the legal world, we haven't yet systematized. I think we have collections of teams and units and individuals and departments that operate you know, on their own. I don't think we are sharing institutional knowledge in the same way. One thing we have done, which I think is making a huge positive difference to the profession is we've started to introduce new types of professionals into the profession that are not lawyers. And, and sometimes they're awfully labeled non-lawyers by the, by the profession and nobody quite likes that label as if you know, the, the, the universe centers around, around lawyers. But so we've introduced these new types of professionals and amongst them are people like process engineers and legal project management professionals. And what they do is they have come in and have brought skills and processes that we didn't really have before. And they are starting to do that kind of system, systematizing, if you like. So they will start to plan how the uh, um, matters are and projects are conducted, for example, and they will maintain raid logs around things and share the learnings from that and try and instill a process of continuous improvement but you've got to have one of those professionals in your world in order to be able to be to be doing that it's not yet embedded in the dna of the profession i think in a way that it that it sounds like it is increasingly so in healthcare and and, and in aviation when, when you were talking i was just thinking about one other thing which is that failure is so painful and there is a an emotional cost to it like when when your case goes up in flames and you lose a client or someone goes to prison or i don't you know I'm, my imagination is slightly running away with me uh, like it, it actually like it, there's 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 burnout associated with that there is a mental health of, you know consequence and in surgery it is the same right if the worst happens and i lose a patient it's awful like my life falls apart it's I don't go home and switch off and not worry about it there's a consequence to my ongoing practice right uh, a real practice practical uh, application and I think one of the things that we're slowly learning is that actually you have to acknowledge that and you have to support people right and particularly like through COVID for example you know we've just done a piece of work we've done a big international study you know 67 percent of the workforce is officially burnt out they are exhausted. Like you cannot have uh, an effective, you know, um, high-performance team 
that is emotionally distraught, burnt out, anxious, depressed. Like it, so, so actually, safety. It's about not acknowledging the human aspect of of what we do for the professionals delivering that process, right? And it's stressful, um, and you can't you can't flog that horse. And 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 the other thing that I wanted to say was the word trust. So. What what happened, if you go back to the 90s, um, when we started reporting morbidity and mortality data, one of the things that the surgeons were really worried about was that um, we were going to be judged unfairly on, on the quality of that, on the quality of that data. So the, the truth of the matter is, is that you can go onto a website and you can see my mortality data. You can see how many patients that under my care die from their surgery. And that, that, that lay, leaves you feeling very exposed. And, it, and, and I think it, it, it eroded trust, like professionals felt they couldn't trust that data and they couldn't trust that process. And so if you're going to start using information and data and, and you're going to start developing deep learning tools and start developing algorithms that are going to try and improve performance, the professionals using that software, using that data have to have real trust in it. And that means that they have to understand how it works and the detail of the consequences of it not working effectively. And that means in my profession that actually, if you've got a, an algorithm that's, in, um, that's going to have an impact on patient care, actually it's, it's a therapy, right? It's a medical device, it is an intervention. And I wouldn't give a drug to someone who, and I, you know, if I didn't know how that drug worked and what the side effects of that drugs were or the, the consequences of a, you know, an adverse drug reaction and then what to do if it fails, I would have to know about it. And it's the same for digital interventions. I think young people, are, <laughs> there is a generational divide, right? And young people coming into the medical profession definitely have more insight than perhaps my generation do or, the, or those, those who, who were born pre-digital <laughs> in the dark bronze ages, right? But, but I think still they have to understand the language of code. They have to understand you know, bioinformatics in the way that we didn't. And actually, we are also bringing in people. So you know, we also have experts on our team who are not doctors, who are you know, medical doctors at least. And, and I think we're going to have a really diverse uh, port, you know, team of players in the future that, that have some of those, those skill sets. And dare I say it, probably more legal representation uh, because you know th 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 there is a huge amount of unknown and what we're doing here like we, this is genuinely right at the frontier and uh, a really exciting one by the way which I think is going to be gen generally for the good but there's no doubt that whenever you have uh, a really radical innovation which you try and innovate you're going to cause harm along the way and you have to kind of mitigate for that and protect yourselves and protect your patients as much as you can but also protect the professional the professional needs to be kind of wrapped in cotton wool a little bit but one of the points you made there is whether or not the professionals themselves need to um you're talking about them kind of needing to really understand the kind of the algorithm and have tr trust in it and that raises the question of whether or not what we're saying is that our professionals need to have real expertise in the kind of the tech it's you know tech itself um and that's a question i think we've been you know laboring with a lot in the legal profession as well about whether or not uh, is what we're saying that all legal professionals or healthcare professionals you know, need to become experts in tech them, themselves and 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 i think probably that you don't necessarily need to be an expert in in that yourself but you definitely now need to be lit literate in it um and that literacy needs to extend to being aware of what 
all the available tools are and also their benefits but but equally their limitations and and the risks uh, attached to it and we've got some parallels there so when you know for for example if we've got a very large um, document review exercise to do we need to know that there's a whole bunch of tech tools out there that can help perform those those tasks and, and and do it very effectively but one of the things we also need to know is what are the limitations there and where do you still need the you know the human angle um, how much volume do you need for that tech to actually be if effective and uh, be worthwhile at all and actually increase efficiency rather than reduce it and i think that that then also feeds through to that point you've raised about about training how, how do you how do you train the professional of the future if actually you're taking away from them all of the things that we used to cut our teeth on by doing the same boring task a hundred times a day late in, late into the night and then slowly slowly over years you get on the job experience and you um you know you, you become an expert in in the particular field but if you've taken all of that away because you've deployed nice tech to do to do those things how do you recreate that for people um, you know, do you create artificial, you know, scenarios that they would get in in real life? You know, give them data-driven insights. Is that less effective, or is that more effective? Well, yeah. I mean, I'll come right back to the beginning to the the beginning of this conversation. That what we train kind of in a similar way, which is effectively we both have an apprenticeship model, which is that you do your time. And the old model was you came into that system, you you sweated hard, you didn't sleep for about five to six years, and if you were lucky you progressed uh, and um, the problem was is that that apprenticeship model was completely heterogeneous right so your experience of training in one center was very different to, to, to another uh, and um, very difficult to quantify and very difficult to to measure and, and most of the time it worked but sometimes it failed and when it failed it failed disastrously and you had lots of bad actors and actually the apprenticeship model is not a safe system it's really unsafe right because first of all you have that hierarchy so communicating failure and acknowledging that things aren't going well and i've been in the operating room where things are not going well and actually we were just too too junior and too frightened to say have you considered you know doing x or y that just that conversation just was never going to happen mercifully that i i've you know that would not occur today and um, but also i think it's not an efficient way of training it's not an efficient way of learning like yes i take your point that you've yeah, at some point you've got to do the graft right so particularly for a, for a technical skill like mine i've just got to do a certain number of operations or i'm not going to be able to do it safely but actually we can use technology very effectively to change that process you know to give you a really good example this is you know totally true when i was a junior doctor again i'm very very old so this is a long time ago in a galaxy far far away i was told by you know my i was you know 20 something uh, middle of the night child with appendicitis my registrar said to me I'm going to bed, you're doing this operation, don't come and get me, don't wake me up under any circumstance, crack on, right? And we had a music stand, this is true, we had a music stand in the operating room. This is like every operating room had a set of music stands and you would put the operating text manual on the music stand, right? And you'd start and the, and the sister would turn the page for you, you know, as you sort of poured sweat, right? And that was my education, that was my training. That's awful. It's awful. It's unsafe. It's dangerous. It's stressful. There's nothing good about that training and education. And 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 that's what I mean. Like that, mercifully, again, that doesn't happen anymore. And that's part of what I was saying about safety culture. So, 
so actually i think the apprentice model needs disrupting it needs changing it needs updating and um and actually again like covid i think for us is going to be a really important tool of, for, for for doing that so covid has taught us again you know medicine has, has really radically transformed in the last 20 30 years in its approach and attitudes to training and actually now i'm really pleased to say we have a very very structured program where our trainees are constantly measured and appraised and, and they get kind of constructive feedback but it still takes you know you know 15 years to go from med school to surgical consultant which is just too long like we actually have massive workforce requirements that demand that we produce more doctors than we currently are we were 50,000 nurses short before covid struck right now post brexit post covid we don't you know we definitely don't have enough nurses so the training cycle's got to get faster it's got to get more efficient it's got to constantly get safer and technology has a lot of value there because actually you can simulate and we, we are investing a lot of techno, uh, time in, in simulation technology. So you can stress, you can stress physicians, uh, you know, in really high fidelity environments uh, and test their processes out. And you can test failure modes and you can assess team responses, not just the surgeon, it's the team, right? The team is what makes, what, is what makes clinical care safe. And, and you can feedback and you can learn in those environments. But we can also deploy learning technologies into real world clinical environments. Those learning systems are deployed in real time at the patient bedside. So as that surgeon is performing a task, he or she is constantly being assessed, measured, and their performance is being recorded and then fed back to them. So they, they get real time data on their, on their technical progression and their cognitive and learning progression, uh, knowledge-based progression, sorry, as, as, as they progress. So I think digital is, gonna, is probably gonna have one of its biggest impacts in training and learning for our profession as we, as we go forward. I quite like your um, your terrifying story actually about how how you learned because I, I I certainly had several years at the early stage of my profession being thrown into absolutely situations that I was completely unqualified to to handle and being completely rigid with fear through it, but actually learning so quickly as a result because you just wanted to survive that situation come out with your dignity intact not make an utter fool of yourself uh, and next time do it better and, and actually i found that probably in the space of two years i probably learned more than many people did in in four or five so i've often reflected on whether or not to introduce a, a, a terror style um you know apprenticeship for for, for juniors <laughs> but I, I somehow fear that actually that wouldn't go down very well and we should be focusing <laughs> on some something a bit more data driven as, as you're suggesting <laughs> But, but I think, but I also think like if we come back to the hierarchy thing, right, and the, the apprenticeship model is that I sit in a lot of interview panels, right, I interview a lot of kids coming to med school, and I have a lot of trainees and a lot of PhD students, and these, I call them kids because they're in their 20s, right, but they are so good. They are so capable, like they, these people are amazing, like their CVs are embarrassing. I'm embarrassed because when I was 25. I mean, I, I certainly didn't have their level of focus, their level of competence, right? So these are really good people and they are capable of so much. And actually we underutilized this amazingly uh, valuable resource. Like we, we put these people uh, in a position where we asked them to manage menial processes, which they, you know, which is a waste of their talent. And, and I, you know, you're kind of right, there's a balance because actually, when you were going through those highly stressful situations in the early part of your legal career, actually you were, you know, you got through them and you got through them for a good reason, which is because you, you were completely capable of dealing with it. You just weren't properly supported and helped and managed through that process, right? So it's not about making 
removing young trainees from those experiences. It's about enhancing them and helping them to get through that experience more safely in a more controlled way with more support and more learning. And actually, you know, I think for that reason, we should be able to dramatically shorten our training times. I think, I think to be really, you know, frank about it, I think we patronize quite a lot of our trainees. We say to them, look, you've got to go through this process because I went through it. You know, I, that's, that, that's not the way. And, and, and I think that's going to be an important change for us. I totally agree with that, actually. I really liked your point about how much talent actually is, is coming through the profession because we're seeing exactly the same thing. People are coming through with ridiculous levels of, you know, of skills and qualifications and, um, and you know, all kinds of skills that actually I don't think we had when, when, we, when we were starting out. And how you harness that and deploy it for the you know, benefit of the, of the firm or the industry that you're in is probably one of, the, one of the biggest challenges, actually, because, again, I feel like you, that to some extent you stifle that because you know, we, we put people in boxes too much uh, um, just because it's easier to run life that way rather than looking at this wealth of uh, skills and talent and ideas and, and embedded innovation that is living inside the, the newer waves entering the profession and seeing how we can actually release that uh, the power that's that's contained in there and and use it for all of our for all of our benefits and I think that's something we need to focus on quite quite hard. So basically, what we're saying is the future is really exciting and uh, and and having a future where uh, I was on a different panel yesterday and we were talking about the impact of COVID and we were talking about um, how we were going to get our way out of it and of course those organisations which are able to embrace change and have enough resilience in the organization that they can uh, you know, adopt um, uh, innovative practices to, to, to adapt are gonna survive. And I think the thing about digital is, is that um, it's not optional for us. Like, like we have to do this. Like this is not, it's not like we've been given you know, a drug and we can choose not to take it. Uh, we've got to do it because we know that our processes are inefficient. We know that it could be safer. We know that outcomes could be better. If you look at outcomes from cancer care, you know, your survival's improved by about 50% in 50 years. It's still not, still not 100%, but, um, you know, it needs to be. So, like, we've got to get better. We've got to improve. And uh, we have to use every tool at our, at our disposal. Uh, and I think that's a mindset. That's a culture. You either work within an organization that says, yep, we are an innovative, innovative organization. And we're going to enable our leaders and our managers to uh, and also we're going to train them so they've got the skill set to adopt and apply those innovations or we're not and if you don't you won't survive i don't think and actually we we took some incredible um lessons actually from one of our biggest clients recently through the covid pa pandemic which was mclaren and uh, you, you obviously will have seen this as well where their business was massively impacted the you know production of formula one cars and the world needed more mechanical ventilators at the time and there was a massive shortage in the in the NHS and so they effectively got their best minds together collaborated across the industry took all their engineering you know prowess all their innovation um, ex expertise and in record time they got together and they started producing ventilators as opposed to Formula One cars which is when you think about it, just truly remarkable. And actually, I think, you know, nobody would ever have thought that that was, that was possible. And I think just looking at lessons like that show you the art of the possible, don't they? I think COVID does provide that wonderful opportunity, the light in the sand to really transform uh, not only uh, the health 
profession, the legal profession, but many others. Chris and James, I want to thank you very much for your time today, for your insights, for your great storytelling, and thank you for being part of Business Agenda. Thank you very much indeed. My pleasure. Thanks for having us. Thank you for listening to Ashurst Business Agenda. We hope you found this episode both worthwhile and insightful. To learn more about our podcast channels, please visit ashurst.com forward slash podcasts. To ensure you don't miss future episodes, subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform. While there, please feel free to keep the conversation going and leave us a rating or review. Thanks again for listening and goodbye for now.